The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. This morning, we'll be returning to our passage-by-passage journey through the book of Genesis. And the next passage we come to is Genesis 12, 10 through 20. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Shane. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're told that there are different kinds of soils on which the seed of your word falls. Thorny soil, rocky soil, Soil on a path and good, fertile soil. And it's only when the seed falls on that last kind of soil that it actually produces fruit. So please, God, help us to be that fertile soil this morning so that the seed of your word can take root and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's something within us that's drawn to the idea of a hero. Uh, I think this is especially true in childhood, uh, whether it's a fictional hero like Superman or Batman or perhaps someone who exists in real life like a famous athlete or, or someone like that. Children love having heroes and Many times, children who grow up in church learn to start viewing various characters in the Old Testament essentially as heroes who are the epitome of what we should seek to become. Uh, I know that was definitely true for me. Uh, Throughout most of my childhood, I uh, remember hearing stories in Sunday school about uh, various characters in the Old Testament, and uh, these people were often presented as larger-than-life heroes 
whose stories were in the Bible uh, so that we can be inspired by their faith and seek to imitate their lives. You know, I heard about Moses and Daniel and, and of course, Abraham here and um, Gideon, just so many uh, people, and that is how they were presented. So, for example, uh, just like David heroically defeated Goliath, we too should seek to defeat the giants in our lives. Just as Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, we should likewise go wherever God leads us without letting any obstacle stand in our way. So the the idea is that the heroism we find in the Old Testament should inspire us to live for God today. Now, on the one hand, I do think that approach is at least partially legitimate. I believe the Old Testament records commendable features in the lives of certain men and women to inspire us to imitate them in those areas. However, there's a lot more to it than that. As we'll see this morning, these characters are in the Bible not just so that we can imitate them in certain ways, but also so that we can see and understand something of critical importance. And I look forward to discussing with you what that is. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's first look at what's recorded about Abram here in Genesis 12, 10 through 20. By the way, Abram is the same guy who would later be called Abraham when God changes his name. But for the time being, he's just Abram. And in the previous passage, God called Abram to leave the city where he was and to leave his extended family and really everything that was familiar to him and go to a distant land that he had never seen before. God says to him in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 4 then tells us, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So in obedience to God's call, Abram takes his nephew named Lot, and even at age 75, sets out from Haran and starts going in the direction God leads him. Uh, Verses 5 through 9 then describe his journey through the land of Canaan and God's promise to one day give Abram's offspring that land. And that's where we pick up the story this morning in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So God allows the land of Canaan to experience a severe famine with the result that Abraham temporarily moves his family to Egypt, presumably only intending to stay there uh, for the the duration of the famine. Um, Egypt, of course, had the Nile River flowing through it and therefore wasn't as affected as other places were by the regional droughts that caused famines. We then read of Abram in verses 11 through 16. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abram's wife, Sarai, was apparently quite a looker. Um, It seems Abram had done relatively well uh, for himself in that regard. And if you remember, verse 4 told us that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, uh, making uh, Sarai at that point at least 65 years old. Yet, even at age 65, she was still apparently so stunningly beautiful that there was a danger that other men would desire so badly to have her as their wife that they would even go to the length of killing her husband, Abram, in order to get her. And Abram's concern about that happening wasn't just some sort of irrational fear or, or jealousy either. As we can see in these verses, it was a very justified concern. Sarai was indeed so beautiful that even the king of Egypt himself, called Pharaoh, takes her to be his wife. Yet the main thing for us to take note of here is the lie Abram told in an effort to preserve his life. Now, this lie of Sarai being his sister, it actually had some truth mixed in with it. You see, as we'll learn in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, Sarai was indeed the biological half-sister of Abram. It says, the daughter of his father, though not of his mother. So, yeah, that's pretty messed up. Uh, The book of Leviticus would later prohibit uh, that kind of thing. Um, So Abram's lie did indeed have a a measure of truth mixed in with it. However, as J.I. Packer has written, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And that's certainly the case here. Even though Abram might have tried to justify this lie in his own mind by telling himself that it was half true, that doesn't make it any less of a lie. So Abram really seems to have taken a turn for the worse since the beginning of the chapter. I mean, back in verse 4, we read about Abram boldly venturing out in faith in response to God's call without even knowing where he was going. God had simply told him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. You just think about what a monumental act of faith it was for Abram to obey that call. We have every indication that Abram was very comfortable where he was living. He had been living there a, a long time and had become very settled. Of course, his, his whole extended family lived there, so he could expect a lot of support from them. And he was quite prosperous there. Not only that... The only thing Abram had to go on for this major life decision was the the, the rather general promise of blessing in verses 1 through 3. God doesn't give him any details about where he's supposed to go. So just imagine that God told you one day, hey, I want you to uh, put all your stuff in a moving truck, and I want you to leave your home 
here in Pittsburgh. Leave your family, leave everything that's familiar to you and go that way (laughs) to the land I'll show you. That's essentially what God was saying to Abram, meaning that Abram had to exercise even more trust in God than he would have otherwise had to. So for all practical purposes, Abram might as well have been blindfolded as he went where God told him to go. He exhibited extraordinary faith there. However, here in our main passage, Abram doesn't seem to have much faith in God at all. Instead of trusting God to protect him and his family, Abram takes things into his own hands by lying about who Sarai is to him. Now, it's important to understand that Abram never intended for another man to actually take Sarai to to be his wife. Uh, Rather, Abram's plan, it would seem, would be for this ruse to simply buy him and Sarai enough time to escape. You see, back in that culture, if a woman didn't have a father who was living, her brother would negotiate for her marriage. So therefore, if some guy in Egypt wanted to marry Sarai, well, the natural thing for him to do was to, uh, would be to negotiate with Abram. And uh, that negotiation would give Abram and Sarai the time they needed to flee the area. So you can see how it must have seemed like a brilliant plan to Abram. I imagine he was probably congratulating himself for being so clever. However, what Abram failed to anticipate is that Pharaoh himself would take an interest in Sarah. And whereas other men would have probably tried to negotiate for Sarai, uh, Pharaoh isn't really the kind of person who negotiates, right? And so he just takes her to be his wife and then in return gives Abram a ridiculous amount of material possessions as compensation. And so Abram's brilliant plan ends up backfiring. Yet, of course, what's being highlighted in this passage isn't Abram's lack of cleverness, but rather his lack of faith. And the way his lack of faith manifests itself in him taking things into his own hands and lying about Sarai's identity. And by the way, how often are we tempted to exhibit faithlessness in our lives? But by laying aside what we know God would have us do, and instead taking things into our own hands. You know, maybe we're anxious about having enough money to pay our bills, and so we we do something dishonest to get more money. Maybe we conveniently forget to uh, report some of our income to the IRS. Um, Or maybe, uh, in another scenario, maybe we're so uh, desperate to be married that we end up marrying someone who really isn't that devoted to the Lord. So there are plenty of ways in which um, we can take things into our own hands instead of trusting God to take care of us. Yet as we'll see in Genesis 12, the God whom Abram apparently doesn't think is able to take care of him is the very same God who will end up rescuing Abram after Abram's plan backfires. So, as it turns out, God actually is able to take care of Abram 
even to the point of getting him out of messes of his own making. And we can see how God does that in verses 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. <coughs> Excuse me. So Abram's lie, we see here, is eventually revealed for what it is. And he's publicly humiliated before Pharaoh and probably the entire nation of Egypt and is sent away in disgrace. That's a good reminder for us that lies always seem to have a way of being exposed for what they are. Somehow, the truth always comes to light. One particularly uh, notable example of this, even that comes to my mind from recent weeks, is uh, George Santos. Uh, For those not familiar with uh, the story, George Santos somehow uh, basically managed to lie his way straight into the United States Congress. Like he totally fabricated almost his entire resume, including the schools he attended and uh, the jobs he had held previously and just about everything else about himself. And uh, he somehow managed to get elected to Congress this past November before his lies were exposed. It's really kind of stunning when you think about that, that being possible. Yet as we see with him, no matter how slick you are or think you are with lying, the truth always ultimately has a way of coming to light. And I say ultimately because... Even in the minority of cases where the truth doesn't come to light during your earthly lifetime, Jesus will make sure it comes to light one day on the day of judgment. But going back to the story of Abram, you would think that after this humiliating ordeal of his lie being exposed and him being sent away from Egypt in disgrace, that he'd learn his lesson, right? You'd think he would never again do anything even remotely similar to what he had done in Egypt to bring himself into such disgrace and to to bring so much trouble. And yet, that's actually not the case, sadly enough. Looking ahead to Genesis 20, Abram, for some mysterious reason, gets the brilliant idea of telling the exact same lie about his wife a second time, only this time to Abimelech, the king of Gerar. I mean, the lie clearly works so well for him in Egypt, so why not try it again in Gerar, right? I mean, like what in the world was Abram thinking? Yet we read in Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2, from there, Abram journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. 
So Abram, who at this point is going by Abraham, he tells the same lie. And of course, guess what happens? Sure enough, the king, Abimelech, takes Sarai for his wife. (laughs) Didn't see that coming, right? And sure enough, God has to get Abram out of the mess he's made again. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. That's kind of scary when God says that to you. Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. We then read about Abimelech's response in verses 8 and 9. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So note the irony, (laughs) both here and back in our main passage of Genesis 12. Both of these pagan kings, Abimelech and Pharaoh, are portrayed as acting with greater integrity than Abram, who supposedly was a follower of God. Now, these kings undoubtedly uh, lived lives of significant corruption and depravity in general. Yet, in these stories... They're actually, they actually assume the moral high ground, whereas Abram is the one who's acting deceitfully. They're the saints, while Abram's the sinner. And don't doubt for a minute that that contrast is very deliberate in both stories. These narratives are intended to make Abram's sin stick out like a sore thumb. And we'll discuss the reason for that in a few moments But before we do that, I think it's worth saying something about how easy it is for patterns of sin to be established in our lives. Just ask yourself, why was it that Abram told the exact same lie to Abimelech that he had told to Pharaoh? Especially when that lie didn't even work the first time could at least part of the reason be that Abram was becoming desensitized to that particular sin. You see, the more you commit a certain sin, the less sensitive you are to it. And the easier you find committing that sin to be in the future. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says about false teachers in 1 Timothy 4.2. He describes them as liars whose consciences are seared. You might also compare it to a boulder rolling down a hill. The more that boulder rolls down the hill, the more speed and momentum it picks up, and the harder it is to stop. Likewise, sin also easily can pick up momentum in our lives. The more we do it, the less guilty we feel and the more inclined we are to do it in the future. Before we know it, it becomes a way of life. And I'd imagine that's the way it was for Abram as well. Like Abram's second recorded lie probably came much easier for him than his first recorded lie. 
And both of those lies were probably a part of a much bigger pattern of lying in his life. Not only that, but as we see in the book of Genesis and and continue, it actually gets worse. Abram appears to have passed down this habit of lying to his children and grandchildren. In Genesis 26, for example, we read about Abram's son, Isaac. It says in verses 6 and 7, So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, look at that, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So isn't that interesting? Isaac seeks to protect himself by saying falsely that Rebekah is his sister. Now, where do you think he got that idea from? And really, the rest of the story goes about how you would think this lie doesn't work any better for Isaac than it did for his father, Abram. Not only that, but it appears as though this habit of lying was passed down to Isaac's son, Jacob, as well. Although there's no record of Jacob falsely claiming that his wife was his sister, um, perhaps by that point he kind of figured out that's not a very good lie, uh, but Jacob still lied uh, to throughout much of his life, really, to just about everyone he meets, or at least he acts in a deceptive manner. In fact, the very name Jacob actually means deceiver. So Abram's habit of lying had some significant consequences that he probably didn't foresee, including the passing down of that habit to his children and grandchildren. So perhaps we should ask ourselves, what kind of a legacy are you leaving? That's a good question, especially for those who are parents. Like, when your kids look at you, what kind of an example do they see? Do do they see a life that you would want them imitating? Don't expect them to rise above the example that you set for them. If your devotion to the Lord is half-hearted, why would their devotion to the Lord be anything above half-hearted? Or, to get more specific, if you, let's say, consistently prioritize, I'm going to step on a few toes with this one, If you consistently prioritize your kids' sports leagues and different extracurricular activities above church on a consistent basis, why would you expect them, when they grow up, to be meaningfully involved in church, if they're really even involved at all? Or if you compromise your moral integrity in a certain area, why would they not feel the freedom? to compromise their moral integrity as well. And so there's no question that you will have an impact on your children. The only question is, what kind of an impact will you have? And so with Abram, way back in Genesis 12, as he's with Sarai in Egypt, we see that his 
sin of falsely claiming that Sarai was his sister, number one, it helped establish a pattern of sin in his life. And number two, it also led future generations into that same sin. And from that, we see that Abram was a deeply flawed man in desperate need of God's grace. And that's the main idea that emerges from this larger passage. Abram was a deeply flawed man in desperate need of God's grace. And that actually points us to a larger truth that becomes clearer and clearer as we read through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with men and women whose stories are incredibly well-known and who often act in very commendable ways. And yet the closer we look at these heroes of the faith, the more we see how terribly flawed All of them are. Noah, for example, was more righteous than anyone else in his generation and was therefore rescued from the flood. Yet as we've already seen in our journey through Genesis, he had a bit of a drinking problem that left him passed out and naked on at least one occasion. Moses courageously led God's people out of their Egyptian captivity. Yet he had a significant problem with his temper that toward the beginning of his life led him to murder someone and toward the end of his life led him to lash out in anger in a way that resulted in God prohibiting him from entering the promised land. Gideon was famously used by God to defeat Israel's enemies even though they had armies much larger than his own. And yet he would later tragically lead the Israelites into idolatry. Hezekiah was a generally godly king who spearheaded some major religious reforms and and, and cleansed the temple of Jerusalem from everything that defiled it, everything idolatrous. And yet he later became prideful and arrogant and flaunted his wealth before foreign dignitaries which uh, eventually resulted in Jerusalem being plundered and destroyed. Elijah was a, a prophet who courageously confronted the prophets of a pagan deity called Baal and demonstrated God's supremacy in a dramatic way. Yet no sooner did that dramatic demonstration take place than Elijah became overcome with fear at the threats of a a wicked queen named Jezebel and basically ran off into the wilderness with his tail tucked between his legs and struggled with a prolonged season of depression, even asking God at one point to end his life. And then the example that's probably the most well-known of them all is King David, described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. The godly qualities of David are almost too numerous to mention. And yet, what did he do when he looked out over the housetops of Jerusalem from his palace and saw the woman Bathsheba bathing on her roof? Well, since Bathsheba's husband was deployed as a soldier, David brought Bathsheba into his palace and committed adultery with her. 
And then when he found out she was pregnant, he had her husband killed so that he could immediately marry Bathsheba and the child would appear to be legitimate. The point is that all of these supposed heroes of the Old Testament were actually terribly flawed. In fact, just to put it in a modern context, I would say at least half of them, at least half of them, probably wouldn't be qualified to be elders at this church, right? Uh, Certainly not during certain seasons of their lives, and for many of them, like, not ever. But that's actually the point. That's the point. Even the best people in the Old Testament are still sinners in need of a Savior. You could probably add that to our main idea as an addendum. Even the best people in the Old Testament are still sinners in need of a Savior. And one day, God would send that Savior in the person of Jesus. You see, neither Abram nor any of the other Old Testament characters I just mentioned are heroes. They may have done some commendable things at various points in their lives, but they're not heroes. Jesus is the hero. Jesus came to this earth and lived a life of sinless perfection. You know, as we look at Abram's life, we see him exhibiting faith at several key moments. Yet as a commentator named Kent Hughes writes, Jesus is the man of faith par excellence. Jesus did not stumble when trials came. His faith never wavered. He did not look to his own devices, but only to God. Abram was a great man of faith, but Christ is the perfect man of faith. Abram left his home and family to go to an unknown land, but Christ left heaven in obedience to the Father's call. Abram is known both for his great faith and great failure. Jesus' life was one of Perfect faith without failure. His life was all in faith and by faith from beginning to end. Then after Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life in our place, he died on the cross in our place. In other words, Jesus took our sins on himself and suffered the penalty for those sins so that we, wouldn't have to. He suffered that punishment we deserve. Not just the physical death, but the full, undiluted wrath of God against sin. We deserve to face it, but Jesus endured it instead. Then after Jesus died, he victoriously rose from the dead three days later and is therefore now able to save everyone who will look to him to do for them what they could never do for themselves. And look to him for rescue. And so that's the way in which Jesus is the hero that none of the characters from the Old Testament could ever be. He's the one. They were generally faithful in many ways, but fatally flawed in other ways. 
as we see all too clearly with Abram in the way he conducts himself in our main passage. Yet Jesus was faithful in every way and is therefore able to rescue us from our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. Yet the Bible is very clear that in order for us to receive that gift, we have to renounce everything in our life that displeases God and put our trust, put our faith in Jesus alone for rescue. It's only when we do that that we experience all the benefits of what he accomplished on our behalf. Think of it this way. In order to get to heaven, you need a perfect score on God's test. You need a grade uh, grade of A+, 100%. That perfection is what's required in order to dwell in the presence of a perfectly holy God in heaven. Now, obviously, every single one of us has failed that test. And not only have we failed the test, we've actually failed miserably with a grade of 0%. See, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that even the most righteous things we do are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God because they flow out of a sinful heart and are therefore tainted by sin. So understand that our grade isn't just like barely shy of the passing grade of 100%. It's not a 95% or 90 or even 80 or 70. No, it's a 0%. However, when Jesus came to this earth and lived as one of us, guess what grade he got? 100%. He answered every single question on God's test correctly, we might say, and earned a perfect grade and therefore passed the test. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. As we put our trust in Jesus, we get to swap test scores with him. Jesus takes our 0% on himself and suffers the penalty for our failures on the cross. But that's not enough, is it? Because we still need a grade of 100%, right, to get into heaven, don't we? And so not only does Jesus take our 0%, He also gives us his 100%. His perfect test score is applied to our record. The the theological word for that is imputed. His perfect righteousness is imputed or transferred over to us so that we're clothed with his righteousness, so to speak. So understand that we need the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross in our place, but we also need the righteous life, the the perfectly sinless life of Jesus lived in our place. Only with both of those things can we stand righteous before God. But again, that only happens when we put our trust in Jesus and cry out to Jesus for rescue. He's the hero that provides the rescue we so desperately need. Not Abraham, not Moses, not even David. Jesus alone is the hero who rescues us 
from our sin.